Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, and I'm a children's book author. And I'm Eve Yohallen. I'm also a children's book author. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related topic, and in this episode, we consider how much fun can a book possibly be? (laughs) And the answer is so much fun. Um, A book can be so fun and so informative, and then if you're really lucky, like we are, you get to have a fantastic conversation with the person who wrote the book. Ah, I love this episode so much. I love it too. And I hope everyone who's listening will feel the same way. The book we're talking about today is A Pocket Guide to Pigeon Watching, Getting to Know the World's Most Misunderstood Bird. It's written and illustrated by our guest, Rosemary Mosco. This is one of those books that takes a subject that you might think you know a lot about or that you you might think you don't really care about it one way or the other, and then it shows you that you're flat out wrong. Totally. Okay, full confession. I was definitely a member of the Pigeons or Rats with Wings team before I read Rosemary's book, but now I look at them with so much affection and appreciation. This book should win an award for greatest number of fun facts. And don't assume that because Rosemary sometimes writes for kids that this episode is G-rated. I would give it at least an R and maybe even an NC-17 if we were a video instead of a podcast. Yes. In the words of my grandmother, Leah, it's got some sexy in it. Pigeon sexy. (laughs) sexy. Get excited. (laughs) Rosemary Mosco is a science communicator, acclaimed cartoonist, and speaker on all things bird. She's the creator of the webcomic Bird and Moon, which won the National Cartoonists Society's Award for Best Online Short Form Comic. Rosemary is the author of many science books for young people, including the New York Times best-selling Atlas Obscura Explorer's Guide for the World's Most Adventurous Kid. She's also a writer for the PBS kids show, Eleanor Wonders Why. We started our interview with a pretty heated confrontation between Julie and Rosemary. Here's what went down. I have a little bit of a beef with you, which is, according to your website, your favorite bird is the Lazen albatross. I'm a brand new member of Team Pigeon, having read your book, and I want to say, how could you? What <laughs> does the Lazen albatross have that we don't have? Um, my secret is that people are always asking me my favorite bird. They don't ask me my favorite glacial geology feature, which I put on my website because. I have one and I stick with it. I want to take a step back and just point out, Julie, that when you asked this question, you said that we don't have, like you now consider yourself a pigeon. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's a lot of pressure. I didn't know I'd I'd actually be interviewed by a pigeon. Oh, no. So what's your favorite geological feature? And then please tell us all about the Blazin' Albatross. So um, 
I live in a part of the country in the Northeast US where the glaciers came down and basically scoured and shaped everything. And so everywhere you go, there's evidence of glaciers. There's rocks they left behind. There's mounds that they created. But there's this one feature that is sort of like an inverse river. It's called an esker. And it's where the glaciers melted and carried rocks kind of in a river-like shape underneath them in this sort of like branching flowing pattern. And then the ice melted away. And so there are these raised branching rivers that you can walk across. And it's so cool. And no one ever asked me that. So I really (laughs) appreciate that you did. But they asked me what my favorite bird is. And it changes every five seconds. So don't trust. (laughs) Don't ever trust me when I say what my favorite bird or animal is. You might as well tell us what you love about the Lazen albatross, even if it's not still your favorite. Oh, yeah. So albatross are these like really kind of romantic birds. They mate for life and they live a really long time. The couples will split up and kind of wander the seas and then every few years come back together and have a baby. And there's one um, Lazen albatross named Wisdom who is this famous albatross who's had chicks for like something like 60 years. You know, albatross face all these threats, but she just keeps coming back and having babies. She's just amazing. There's always a big deal made by U.S. Fish and Wildlife when she comes back to her island. And, you know, wisdom is back. For all of your love of albatross, you have written a book about pigeons. Yes. So how did that come to pass? Did you wake up one morning, call your agent and say, you know, one word, pigeons? (laughs) If I'd done that, my agent, um, he would have said, tell me more, flesh it out. (laughs) Yeah. So I have always been really into birds, but I've also always lived in cities. So pigeons were just sort of, you know, one of the major birds that I saw around. The neighborhood kids would bring me sick pigeons that they would find and I would do my best. Usually they would not make it because they would be like on death's door when they'd be brought to me. But um, I just really fell in love with them. And I also, as kind of a nerdy kid, I was always really into underdogs. And I feel like pigeons are the ultimate underdogs. And I think I thought, oh, I really want to do a book about pigeons. Surely no one will let me do that. And then one day I just sort of, I don't know if I'd had too much tea or something. (laughs) I wrote to my agent and said, pigeons. And I came up with the alliteration of a pocket guide to pigeons. And he went, that's great. And I thought, you're kidding me. And it's such a delightful book. You open it with this fabulous quote from Charles Darwin. He says, I will show you my pigeons, which is the greatest treat, in my opinion, which can be offered to a human being. Can you tell us about Darwin and pigeons? Why did he love them so much? And what did he learn from them? So Darwin did not always like pigeons. You know, he was traveling the world and he was um, seeing exotic critters. And he sort of had a bit of a disdain for the local pigeon keepers. Pigeon keeping was all the rage, you know, keeping different fancy breeds of pigeons, sort of like we, you know, have different fancy breeds of dogs. But at some point, Darwin realized that he needed to kind of experiment with some kind of an animal and see if he could breed them in certain directions and for certain traits. And he sort of realized, okay, well, I guess it should be pigeons. So he built this pigeon coop in his backyard and he started going to, you know, pigeon keeper events. And then he was pretty quickly overcome with adoration for pigeons. He just fell head over heels for them. And they really informed his evolutionary theories because there are all these different breed of pigeon and they look 
wildly different from each other. I mean, some of them have droopy faces and some of them have feathers on their feet. They come in all sorts of colors. And the pigeon breeders, some of them maintain that those pigeons all came from one species of pigeon, sort of like how all dogs come from the wolf. But other pigeon breeders said, oh, no, no, these are all different species because they're so wildly different. And Darwin sort of determined that they all came from this one species, Columba Livia, the, the feral rock dove. And he back crossed them and figured out how to, you know, maintain certain characteristics and get rid of others. He used pigeons to formulate so many of his theories, which is why like his books have a lot of pigeon content. You know, people will read them and think, oh, there should be your finches on page one. But no, he just goes on and on about pigeons. Were pigeons more important to him than finches? I've heard people say that. I don't know that I am in a position <laughs> to make a statement either way, but I, I think that could be, that could totally be argued because he was intimately familiar with them and he was working on them. And he was, um, when they passed away, he was uh, skeletonizing them. So like, you know, decomposing them and looking, he wasn't dispassionate. He was just so in love with them. Okay. So my whole perception of Darwin has just shifted. That's amazing. Um, now, you write that pigeons live on every continent on the globe except Antarctica, but where did they originate from and then how did they spread out? That's a really good question. It's sort of a tricky one. I think the wildest thing about pigeons is that all the pigeons we see in the city that we consider to be wild are all feral, which means they were domesticated thousands of years ago and then they escaped and are basically feral cats or feral dogs. They're pets that went wild. That's so fascinating. Okay, now we're going to move into the um, what I I think of as the thirteen year old boy portion of this interview because <laughs> that's kind of where I live. Um, Me too. Now, it, it turns out pigeon poop is fascinating and it has some crazy uses. It and it's been the source of strife between royalty and landowners. So, please tell us more about pigeon poop. Yes, you know you might look at a pigeon waddling down the street eating a Cheeto and think okay, why would we domesticate a pigeon? And one of the reasons is that that poop that we hate so much is a really, really, really good fertilizer, particularly in places uh, like the Middle East and, and more deserty places where there wouldn't be that input of nutrients. So for thousands of years, people have been raising pigeons, you know, in groups of like tens of thousands and collecting their poop and using it to fertilize, you know, so it was really, really, really valuable. Unfortunately, as time went on, we realized that we could make gunpowder with one of the elements in pigeon poop, the saltpeter stuff. So there was this issue in England where these folks called saltpeter men would go around and like bash their way into pigeon houses and dig up the, the poop and bring it to the king. And they were allowed to go anywhere and smash into any dovecoat, you know, pigeon coop and collect this really precious poop. So, you know, pigeon poop may have fed whole populations and also, you know, had an input in war and in, you know, the global tide of politics. So it's it's a lot more important than we think of. We think of it as just this gross goop that's on statues. So when I was a little girl, I never dreamed that I'd grow up to have a podcast and get to ask this particular question. Do pigeons have penises? <laughs> so happy that you asked that. Just so you know, we have a whole bunch of follow-up questions. Yes, we do. Oh, we do. Boy. <laughs> oh, I'm so happy. It's kindred spirits. Um, yeah. So I have a whole section in the book about pigeon anatomy. 
And one thing I wanted to address was if you flip over a pigeon and, you know, why are you doing this? What is the (laughs) circumstance in which you're doing this? Will you see any genitalia? And you won't, which is kind of a problem because you can't tell from just looking at a pigeon whether it's male or female, which has led to some real confusion. So pigeons do not have penises or anything that we would call a penis. All the genitalia is inside and they basically have a hole called a cloaca, or there's an opening in the cloaca called, you know, the cloacal opening. And so to have sex, they squish their holes together. The males and females have these holes and the male shoots his sperm from his hole into her hole. Basically it's called the cloacal kiss, which I apologize. (laughs) (laughs) So, so special. (laughs) It's, it's, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, cute and horrifying. So I have a whole table in the book of birds that do in fact have penises because the vast majority of birds lost their penises for reasons we don't totally understand. But if you think about like aerodynamics, that might have something to do with it. But I have a whole table of like birds that actually do have penises. Um, A lot of the birds that have penises are sort of like, you know, birds that tend to run instead of fly. But ducks have huge spiraling penises that are barbed and they're barbed they're yeah they're horrifying so i wouldn't um i i am not an expert in exactly why that is but i did uh the woman who fact checked my book diane kelly she is a researcher who especially studies animal penises so i got to talk to her a lot about all of that and it was delightful so so along these lines what what is the evolutionary answer? Eve wrote this question. Julie, do you want me to ask this question? Eve wrote this question. Yes, you I'm so happy to ask this question. And this, this may be a question for your fact checker, but I'm, we'll ask it of you. So turning it around, what's the evolutionary advantages to penises? I mean, at the risk of alienating all of our male-bodied listeners, would mammals be better off without them? I'm not sure. I mean, mammals have all sorts of weird penis characteristics, like most of them have bones in their penises. Mm -hmm. We are odd in that we don't. Insects have all manner of weird kind of devices that they ram into each other. Um, So I don't know. I don't know that I would want us to have a cloaca. It's sort of just a hole that everything comes out of. Uh, Everything. And listeners, rosemary means everything. (laughs) (laughs) So, So I'm not sure that we would necessarily want them, but I mean, it's pretty easy storage. You know, you just have a little hole and that's all. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to shift the conversation now. Oh no. <laughs> no, no. This, this is fun too. Can <laughs> we well, can keep talking about bird penises for 10 hours. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be delighted. But, okay. Can we please talk about messenger pigeons? which I find so fascinating. First of all, how does this work? Could I just walk up to a pigeon in the park, tie a note around its leg and say, you know, take this to my sister, Deborah in Louisiana. Forthwith, you know, fly, pigeon, fly. You could. It would take your message back to its nest. Mm. And that's as far as it would go. Okay. There's all these amazing stories of doves carrying messages and pigeons carrying messages. But Really what a messenger pigeon does is it flies home as fast as it can. So uh, what you do if you want to pass a message by a pigeon is you take a pigeon away from its nest. The nest is where you want it to go to and you'll travel really, really far away. You know, you can go hundreds and hundreds of miles away. And then when you're ready, you'll affix the message to the pigeon and release it and it will fly home. 
very steadily. So it's, it's a good way of getting information to, from one place to another, but then you can't send a return message with the same bird. And do we have any idea how they know how to get where they're going? This was one of the most interesting things I found in my book. What we think is going on as of the latest science is that they're using a ton of different senses all at once. Um, so they're using smell. They're potentially using, you know, a, a sense that enables them to sense magnetic fields. They're looking at the sun. They're using landmarks. There's all sorts of different things that they're using. And they seem to use different things depending on the bird's sort of personality. But it's sort of this incredible, magical ability that I wish I had. There are so many fun pigeon facts, and this episode barely scratches the surface or pecks the crumbs. Oh, God. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> that was really dumb. I'm sorry. I apologize. But I have to tell you, I have been dining out on the cloacal hole thing for weeks. I mean, nobody's ever heard of it, or at least nobody I know, and people are fascinated or possibly pretending to be fascinated out of politeness. But either way, it, I'm scoring big points with this story. That is so interesting. I have not told a soul that story. <laughs> Maybe I'm repressed, at least when it comes to pigeons. Or that you've been saving it up for Book Dreams listeners, Maybe. right? Yeah. Possible. Well, I was so excited when Rosemary brought up the albatross because they're my favorite birds too. Did you know that they have the longest wingspan of any bird? I did not know that. Mm -hmm. Their wingspans can reach 11 feet. That is a long wingspan. <laughs> Very long. And they, they ride air currents for hours. Albatrosses can travel more than 600 miles without even flapping their wings. That is crazy. Yes, but true. <laughs> crazy and true. true. Amazing. I love learning about messenger pigeons too, how they navigate, the idea that Back in the day, people traveled with messenger pigeons so they could leave them places. And then later on, the pigeons could fly home with news. Rosemary said in her book that the ancient Greeks used messenger pigeons to announce the results of the early Olympic Games. And the news company Reuters got its start as a messenger service that flew pigeons between Belgium and Germany in the 1850s. Uh, so many fun pigeon facts. Let's get back to the interview for more. True or false? Pigeons are filthy. Okay, false. Pigeons are not filthy unless they have a bath and they're in some sort of disgusting puddle, in which case any of us would be filthy. So we all, you know, tend to look at pigeons and we think, oh, these things are super gross. And it's partly because they forage on the ground. So they feed by walking around poking around and eating garbage that's on the ground, which we see is kind of filthy. But, you know, left to their own devices and given a, a clean environment, pigeons are constantly bathing and preening and they preen each other to make sure that they, you know, rid each other of parasites and make sure their feathers are, you know, super clean and, and super intact and they'll molt out damaged feathers. So they, they really aren't as dirty as we think they are. They don't like roll in mud. Right. And say a little about the dust on their feathers. You talk about it in the book. Yeah. I mean, this is going to sound slightly morbid, but if a, a pigeon hits a window, you'll see this pigeon-shaped impression of dust. And that's a cosmetic product that pigeons make. They have these special types of feathers that sort of crumble off and produce this dusty material that they wipe all over their feathers that can sort of soak up oil and kind of like give their feathers this really nice sheen. 
So, you know, maybe we should all be purchasing expensive vials of, of pigeon dust. Yeah. So how did pigeons get such a bad rap just in the hygiene department and otherwise? Yeah, pigeons really are in a lot of places considered just disgusting critters now. And that's sort of a relatively new phenomenon. So for thousands of years, you know, pigeons were domesticated maybe 5,000 years ago, probably more. We're getting back to the dawn of recorded history. So pigeons were really seen as incredibly valuable. And for a long time, only, you know, the richest people or, or the kings or queens and dukes and earls would get to have a pigeon. And everybody else was sort of like, you know, looking longingly at these pigeon coops. So they really were like these high class items in a lot of the world. And then what sort of happened was, a few things. So pigeons escaped and went feral, sort of like, you know, a feral cat or a feral dog. We tend to be less interested in, you know, feral critters. Um, we sort of see them as scrabbling around and being kind of gross. And they do, you know, eat our discarded food. And they also just became obsolete. We stopped using them for messages. We stopped using their poop. We used to eat a ton of pigeon. We don't eat them anymore. Um, because chickens are just easier to to raise. And so slowly we we got kind of disdainful. But really in America, things took a turn super for the worst in the 1960s when a couple people got meningitis in New York City. And the officials blamed it on those dirty, gross pigeons that were walking around. And it was not the pigeons' fault. But that was really when the tide of public opinion kind of hit its low point. And from then on, a uh, city official called them rats with wings. And we just decided that we hated them. And we totally forgot how incredibly useful and beloved they used to be. What are some pigeon predators? Oh, yeah. Pigeons are super, super useful if you want to find hawks and other cool birds of prey. The fastest animal in the world, the peregrine falcon, tends to eat pigeons. So if you see a flock of pigeons burst into the air, you should look around because you might see this, you know, incredible peregrine falcon diving to catch one. You might see a red-tailed hawk. You could see a, a cooper's hawk. In some places, it's, you know, goshawks. All around the world, there are these incredible um, hawks and falcons that will eat your pigeons. In New York City, for example, there are tons of hawks. How is it that New York City has so many pigeons? Well, a hawk doesn't eat that much. Mm -hmm. They don't, you know, wolf down tons and tons and tons of pigeons. Also, you know, a lot of falcon and hawk hunting runs will end in failure because pigeons are so fast and they're so good at swooping away from, from predators. And they also have a lot of babies. I mean, I think on average, they'll have about 13 babies per year. Wow. And also people feed them, which can really boost their numbers because the more you feed pigeons, the more pigeon babies you get. Mm -hmm. Now, true or false, pigeons are at the heart of the French Revolution and there should have been a chorus of pigeons in Les Mis. True. <laughs> Absolutely true. We need to rewrite Les Mis and I want to be dressed up like a pigeon and singing a glorious, you know, battlefield song. And Julie wouldn't even have to dress up. She just is a pigeon now. I so am. she could be right there with you. <laughs> right. We might have to work on my voice, but other than that, I'm ready to <laughs> Yes. Okay. So, um, you know, before the French Revolution, again, I was saying that pigeons were 
owned by royals. And so only rich people were allowed to have pigeon coops. And then the pigeons would fly out during the day and they'd fly down to the fields and they'd, you know, strut around looking chubby and delicious in front of peasants and they would eat their grain and then they would fly back to the the fancy pigeon coops. And so ordinary people were really angry that they couldn't keep pigeons. And when the French Revolution hit, they were sort of gleefully smashing all of these pigeon coops as sort of a, you know, screw you to the aristocracy. And pretty quickly, ordinary people were suddenly allowed to keep their own pigeons. Have you ever eaten a pigeon? Does it taste like chicken? I haven't. When you eat pigeon, the tastiest type of pigeon is squab, which you, you've probably heard, you know, on a, on a fancy menu, they'll be, they'll be squab. So squab is a baby pigeon that has gotten to the point where it's about to fledge so it's meaty, but the meat is not the meat of a bird that has been flying around and scrabbling around a lot. So what you're eating when you're eating squab is you're eating sort of young pigeon. It's the lamb of pigeon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, how should we feel about people in Venice standing in St. Mark's Square with their arms outstretched and you know dozens of pigeons perched all over their bodies? Is that truly disgusting or is there something wonderful about it that I'm missing one thing that I don't think you need to worry too much is about those people getting sick. Mm, that, I was going to ask you about that. That's good to know. Yeah. A lot of people worry that pigeons will make them sick. It's possible. I mean, especially if you have an immune system that's struggling, you could potentially get sick. Pigeons can carry some diseases. They also carry some parasites. Although I like to say, you know, we, we get lice, you know, we, we also, we get tapeworms. But for the most part, you don't need to worry about pigeons making you sick. And one of the reasons is that pigeons are so evolutionarily different from us. A lot of the diseases that affect them can't affect us. You write in the book's conclusion, when we begin to care about creatures that most people think are lowly, we become better people. We weave ourselves more tightly into the tapestry of the world around us, and we arm ourselves for the fight to save the world. That is such a lovely sentiment. Is there another creature that most people think of as lowly that you have a fondness for, maybe a possible subject for a future book? There are so many. I think it would be really fun to write something about house sparrows, which have sort of a different history. So uh, one thing that I that I wanted to express in this book kind of subtly, or in some cases, not so subtly, is that wildlife and colonialism are really wrapped tightly together. So the reason why pigeons are here is because of colonialism. And that's also the reason why a lot of creatures, you know, are not here is, you know, when people show up and take over lands, they move, you know, they bring their past ecosystems. And I think that it's really important to recognize that, you know, especially when we're thinking about like traditional indigenous foodways and, and creatures that they love and care about as well. So uh, what I think is really fascinating about house sparrows is not only are they kind of cool because they have complex, you know, social lives, but whereas pigeons were brought over because they were useful sparrows were brought, and I'm talking about like that little house sparrows, a little brown, dirty, you know, guys that you see in the city. They were brought over pretty much because we said, some, some Europeans said, hey, you know what I, what is like a beautiful sound of home and a civilized sound is the house sparrow. 
Mm. That's the only reason they were brought over was to make things sound and look more European. So I think it would be really fun to talk about, you know, both how you can sort of appreciate these cool little brown birds that are all over the place and also what it tells us about, you know, our changing environments and how we shape we shape environments too. And I think I also think it's important to sort of, you know, respect and care for the wildlife around you. Um, and also I think they're very cute. While I'm very relieved to know that pigeons don't make you sick, I still don't think I want to let pigeons perch all over my body. Do you? I don't even like to sit on a patio chair that has bird poop already on it. Right. <laughs> Much less allow the birds to poop on me. So no. Uh, we should also mention that Rosemary doesn't advocate feeding pigeons. She says she understands why people like to do it. People want to connect with nature. But most of the foods that people give pigeons, like bread and corn, aren't healthy for them. Apparently, pigeons love legumes. So if you absolutely must feed some pigeons, bring along some dried lentils. I think my favorite parts of Rosemary's book were the examples of how pigeons interact with history, the stories she tells about pigeons delivering critical messages during war, and the idea that pigeons were a trigger of the French Revolution. I mean, who knew? I didn't. And know. you know what other you know what other book dreams episode has fun facts about the French Revolution? Episode 49, Books Bound in Human Skin, which is another of my favorites. Oh, yes, mine too. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yes, the French Revolution. It's always going to be, those are going to be keepers. Anyway, that is it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Rosemary on Twitter at Rosemary Mosco and online at rosemarymosco.com. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julian.